when you're running for the door in the rain. Read the metro section, read the metro section, read the metro section. Oh, you're welcome in. No, I didn't really want to die. Is hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. And on today's show, Bernie Sanders was berated for making favorable comments on 60 Minutes about Cuba's healthcare system. Interviewer Anderson Cooper immediately questioned Sanders' praise for Cuba's medical system because, well, you know, if it's Cuban, whatever it is. It is readily dismissible by the U.S. media because it must be communist and therefore evil. Well, it turns out that that Sunday, February 23rd interview was rather prescient despite being attacked again for the same comments during the Democratic presidential candidate debate a few days later. Now, you probably don't know this because it's not being reported here in the U.S. media despite at least four 24-7 news channels covering the virus all day, every day, but Cuba may have a wonder drug that is addressing the worst aspects of the coronavirus. They're also sending their medical teams around the world to help combat the virus. Meanwhile, the U.S. is begging for retired healthcare workers to return to their old jobs so there will be enough to care for the vast amounts of patients that are expected in emergency rooms this week. So why was the media so dismissive of Sanders' claims about the success of Cuba's healthcare system? And why aren't they reporting on any of the good Cuban medical teams have done around the world? And if Trump's Trump keeps making all of these far too optimistic claims about cures under the logic of trying to give us hope, then why not tell us about the hope of the Cuban wonder drug that seems to be doing so much good around the world? Why aren't we using that drug yet? We'll find out all about what Cuba is doing to fight the virus and why it shouldn't surprise us that Cuban healthcare workers are becoming heroes around the world. And we speak in a few minutes with lecturer in economic and social history at the University of Glasgow, economic historian Helen Yaffe, author of We Are Cuba, How Revolutionary People Have Survived in the Post-Soviet World. Since 1995, Helen has spent time living and researching in Cuba. You can follow Helen on Twitter at Helen Yaffe. That's Y-A-F-F-E. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, what did you do this weekend? I'm uh, just racked by nightmares every night uh, about like family separation and mass death and panic and fleeing a predatory government bent on expulsion. And they all end with me remembering I have to do a show in the morning. <laughs> Four o'clock in the morning, I just wake up. It is sweating. Like, oh, I also have to do the show. <laughs> I wake, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I wake up at, with weird thoughts about the radio show. Like, I'll wake up after a nap, and I'll like at one in the afternoon and on a Saturday and say, oh, my God, I'm late for the show. So it's, it's also clearly in my thoughts. The show is clearly in my thoughts. But I don't remember any of my dreams recently. And I think it's because I've been uh, drinking more heavily lately, although I've been cutting back just Maybe recently. Maybe I shouldn't have given you all those beers. <laughs> I traded some. It worked out really well. Brave... Informal economy is rebounding under <laughs> it this is. pressure. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is the Louisville Hot Brown. <laughs> An article headlined, These 10 Regional Foods Could Be the Hangover Cures You Need, which was already given us the hangover cures of disgusting Cincinnati chili and the even more loathsome garbage plate. This week offers the Louisville Hot Brown. Sounds like a sex act. Writer, okay, we didn't need to. <laughs> it does. <laughs> writer, sorry. Writer Kay Lonnie reports in USA Today's 10 Best, Louisville is known for bourbon and beer. Check out the Brewgrass Trail, and if you've enjoyed too much of either, you should try the Hot Brown. This famous dish consists of Texas toast topped with sliced turkey breast, Mornay sauce, and bacon. It sounds good. Yeah, this sounds good. Mornay sauce is like a bechamel in that it consists of butter, flour, and milk, but a Mornay also has cheese mixed in, often Gruyere. It was believed bechamel preceded Mornay sauce, but recent 
e-research. <laughs> just research. Okay, just... sorry. But recent research places Mornay as being originated a century earlier than its French cousin Bechamel. This is most I've ever learned from a hangover cure. <laughs> uh, that makes this week's hangover cure the Louisville hot brown. I don't believe that. I believe bechamel came first. You can't come up with something that has a cheese sauce, then you take out the cheese and you're like, hey, look what I just invented. I, I think you add the cheese sauce. I think Mornay came after Bechamel. Any thoughts uh, on that, Alex? You're a Mornay. I didn't expect you to be a Mornay truther over here. <laughs> I don't know. I just don't know. That thing confuses me. The future ain't what it used to be. This is hell. This past weekend started with more confusion from President Trump, and I don't mean his own internal confusion that keeps percolating to the surface every time he speaks at his daily press conferences, but the confusion he spreads by giving incoherent policy statements. No, I'm not talking about the completely off-the-cuff and ridiculous claim that scarves may work better than the CDC's recommendation of using a cloth face mask for protecting yourself from the virus, as well as others. There's absolutely no evidence for a scarf doing better, nor is there any record of anyone ever making the claim before Trump did, so it was likely completely made up at the time, and every time he does say, it's something I've heard, you know where he heard it, it was in his cavernous mind where it was interminably echoing only a few moments ago, now unleashed upon us as we quickly scuttle about fact-checking and disproving yet another Trump claim that has already been released into the wild and consumed by all the wild beasts who live on the edge of the forest. The confusion was over face masks and whether we should wear them or not. The CDC says we should, but the president doesn't think he will, as this is completely voluntary, despite it being a recommendation from the agency responsible for, you know, keeping us alive and safe from things like global pandemics. But Trump won't wear one. And frankly, I won't wear a face mask either, but we have different reasons. Here's the reason Trump gave for not wearing a face mask. Quote, I think wearing a face mask as I greet presidents, prime ministers, dictators, kings, queens, I don't know, somehow I don't see it for myself. I just don't. Maybe I'll change my mind. And after saying that, not one reporter asked, uh, which dictators are you planning on meeting with in hopes that he would label the Philippines Duterte or Turkey's Erdogan or Saudi Arabia's MBS, you know, all his dictator friends, in hopes he would label them dictators because, you know, one thing dictators don't like to be called Dictators. It's as if Trump thinks dictator is a title to be achieved, as if it is capitalized as a name for a head of state. There once was a time that Republicans would badger Democrats for trying to open negotiations with dictators. President Reagan famously said he would not negotiation with di negotiate with dictators. Sure, he was still praising genocidal dictators like Guatemala's Rios Montt, but he wasn't negotiating with him, and when it came to Middle East leaders who were not supportive of the U.S., talks with them were strictly verboten. Instead, Trump openly admits to meeting with dictators as much as he meets with any other head of state, condoning dictatorships, even allying with authoritarian rulers over those who may support, I don't know, democracy? Not that this is new for the U.S. We have a long history of supporting dictators over democracy, but here's a chance for reporters to ask Trump if he, if the U.S. does support dictators, if President Trump has plans to meet with dictators, when these meetings will be taking place, and which dictators will be invited to this dictator summit. But not a peep, not a word from the U.S. media. Why? I don't know. How the hell do I know what their motivations are? And speculating about motivations is a slippery slope toward unestablished conspiracy theories that are based more on one's own confirmation bias than any concrete evidence. With that in mind, let me speculate that the U.S. media, why they don't ask, doesn't, they don't follow up on a statement by the President of the United States when he admits he will be meeting with dictators because it might force them or us to confront a long history of the U.S. backing dictators over democracy, a long past of imposing our will instead of allowing the will of the people to be heard. That's probably what the media is trying to avoid discussing. It would, again, confront us with the American exceptionalism that led us all to think about the pandemic and how it can't happen here. We're not going to have to wear face masks. That's for those people over there. We're better than that, which is... Now what we mumble from behind face masks, that is, if we decide that the CDC recommendation is worthy of adhering to and actually keeping ourselves and others safe. But like I said, I won't be wearing a mask. It's not like I don't have one. We have one N95 masks, but it's a small, so it doesn't 
quite fit me. My girlfriend bought it years ago when she was refinishing or sanding something. I have no idea what she does down in the workshop. We have bandanas. We can make our own makeshift masks with a bandana and a couple rubber bands, as demonstrated over the weekend by the Surgeon General. We have several cloth masks, face masks, on order that should arrive this week. I was also given a couple of handmade, homemade face masks this weekend by the person who was kind enough to sell me weed. And it's good to know that those who are involved in the informal marijuana economy are more concerned about public health than the federal government is. At least my drug dealer can provide me with a face mask, something the government is apparently ill-equipped and unwilling to do. But I won't be wearing a face mask, and it's not because I do not want to. I really want to. I really, really, really want to. But I can't. Because... A face mask for me is potentially deadly. How can something meant to save lives be a threat to mine? If you listen regularly to this show, you know I'm legally blind with a neurological condition that causes all sorts of weird things with my vision. I have limited depth perception. I'm completely colorblind. You know how 2020 vision is supposedly perfect. Mine is more like 2220. Another aspect of my screwed up eye-brain connection is I have extreme light or solar sensitivity, which means I must wear sunglasses outdoors or I simply can't see. Now, have you tried to wear a cloth face mask with sunglasses yet? You can't. And at the same time, do something you really need to do, really need to be able to do, and that is see. When I wear a face mask and put on my sunglasses, my breath exit out, exits out the top of the mask, steaming up my glasses and making it impossible to see what little I can, what I desperately need to see, thus crossing what was once a very busy Devon Avenue, and still is a bit too busy in my opinion, could mean the death of me if I am doing it while my sunglasses are completely steamed up from my breath blowing out of my face mask and up into my face. Sure, if the sun is not out on a gray day or at night or indoors or at a store, sure, I will wear a face mask then, and I do. But on a sunny and even not so sunny day, I can't wear a mask without risking my life in car traffic. Now I have to order a third type of face mask with what are called cool airstream holes that help vent your breath forward instead of up. Those take at least 10 days to get here, so... I don't even know if I'll be getting those until May. In the meantime, I will be taking my chances during the day on my one-block walk back and forth between my home and our studios and office for the next couple of weeks, hoping I won't inhale someone's virus in an attempt to keep me safe from being run over by cars. Yet again, I'm telling you, maybe for you, but at least for me and my awful genetics, yes, this is hell coming up cuba may have a wonder drug to fight covid19 and we'll find out why it shouldn't surprise us that it comes from cuba we'll also have rotten history and what's happening on the rest of this week's shows noam chomsky called this is hell sanity and talk radio so clearly and sadly noam's gone insane this is hell Cuba is a very misunderstood nation where outsiders apply irrelevant economic indicators to display the nation's lack of development. It's almost as if there is an intentional cluelessness when it comes to Cuba, as if the revolution never existed and no longer does. It's as if outsiders can't wrap their minds around the fact that Cubans like Cuba. And right now, what's not being understood about Cuba is their response to the global pandemic. Here to help us understand Cuba better, lecturer in economic and social history at the University of Glasgow, Helen Yaffe is author of We Are Cuba, How Revolutionary People Have Survived in a Post-Soviet World. You can follow Helen on Twitter at Helen Yaffe. That's Y-A-F-F-E. Welcome to This Is Hell, Helen. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to join your show. Thank you so much for being on our show. Uh, Let's start with some of the more breaking news. On Friday, the Associated Press reported for two years the Trump administration has been trying to stamp out one of Cuba's signature programs, state-employed medical workers treating patients around the world in a show of soft power that also earns billions in badly needed hard currency. Before we even go farther in that story, Is this an expression of soft power by Cuba? Is that an, how do you feel about the way that the AP frames that? Well, um, 
it is true that Cuba's um, medical exports or the export of medical professionals has been a very significant source of revenues for the country. But we have to locate that historically. That only emerged um, after the revolution had practiced medical internationalism for several decades. So it was um, very early on the revolution took place, obviously, 1st of January 1959, when Batista flees and the revolutionary seized power. In, um, at that point, there were something like 6,000 um, medics or doctors in Cuba, and half of them left. They joined the exodus of some million professionals leaving the island, mainly for the United States, although not exclusively. And yet, the following year, in 1960, there was a very severe earthquake in Chile, and the Cubans sent some of their precious, uh, very needed medics to go and um, to contribute to emergency medical aid there. Then in 1993, the Cubans set a t sent a team to help the newly independent Algerian state set up a public healthcare system. Um, consequently, many people will know that the Cubans sent soldiers to assist national liberation struggles, particularly in Africa, but they were um, almost always accompanied by medical personnel who provided much needed assistance to populations who, who had absolutely no medical access. So this kind of pattern continued. Um, so the, the form it took was either assistance in an emergency situation or um, with in collaboration with a, a state to helping to set up a public healthcare infrastructure. Uh, however, it was only after the relationship with Venezuela developed under President Hugo Chavez and the famous uh, Oil for Doctors program that Cuba um, started to uh, earn significant revenues from the export of medical professionals. And that was a proposal that came um, from the Venezuelan side. And, you know, when we um, see the importance that it's had in Cuba, there's a lot of cynicism and a lot of um, uh, scepticism about the fact that, you know, Cuba, oh, Cuba's earning out of this medical assistance. But we also have to take account of the fact that the United States blockade, or embargo as they call it, um, is not only preventing trade between the Cuba and the US, it's extraterritorial in nature. So that means that although it's a US legislation which is not adopted overseas, and in fact rejected by most of the countries in the world, um, it is still applied, it is imposed on the rest of the world. And that means that Cuba's possibilities in terms of pursuing normal trade relations are completely hindered. And hence, the export of medical professionals has become um, a key revenue, as we've said. But if we think about the nature of that export, it is also entirely consistent with the principles of the revolution, which have put healthcare and education at its heart. They are key principles. The idea that healthcare and education are universal, that they are free, that everyone is given access, and they are not existing in Cuba as part of a parallel system where the wealthy can opt out into private care. So essentially, the, the export of medical professionals has enabled Cuba to reap the benefits of its socialist investments in health and medicine and has provided much needed revenue in the context of a US blockade which prevents normal trade with the world. So is, I know this is a weird way to phrase it, but is, uh, is Cuba more than a medical threat to U.S. global domination than it is a military threat to U.S. global domination? I know that's a weird way to, way to phrase it, but I, I hope you understand what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I mean, let's be clear, the Cubans have never been a military threat to the United States. I mean, there is uh, no possible way that this tiny little island, which had, you know, some six million people at the time of the revolution, a population that's got close to doubling since then, it has not presented any sort of military threat um, towards the United States. The, the Cubans have um, a claim against the US. They have a document with a lot of detail provided about uh, acts of terrorism and sabotage launched from the US or with the support of US authorities, which have claimed the life of, I can't remember the exact figure, but it's something like 3,400 Cubans 
over uh, the period of the revolution. Now, the same cannot be said in um, in the other direction. So let's be clear that Cuba has never presented a, a, a military threat. What Cuba has presented is a political and ideological threat. Um, and there is uh, someone called Gail Reed who is um, involved with MEDIC, which is a medical cooperation between the US and, and Cuba. Um, and she pointed out that, you know, um, healthcare globally, the, the private healthcare sector operates on the same principle as all, you know, free market exchange. It's demand and supply. So in order to keep demand um, high, you have to, which which means that the price that people will pay to access medical care will be high. You have to re, uh, limit the supply. Now, what Cuba does with its um, uh, immense program of graduating medics and um, all sorts of healthcare professionals, because it's not just doctors, um, is it raises the supply of medics around the world and it undermines the free market, the capitalist market, the commodification of medical care. Um, so, you know, when you have the US, uh, this this incredible battle you're having in the US just to establish a basic system of public health care, um, which doesn't, you know, cost the earth and isn't run by insurance companies that will will uh, scandal and, and um, do anything they can not to pay up and so on. This incredible battle you're having is undermined by the example of Cuba as a small Caribbean nations subject to hundreds of years of colonialism and then imperialism and then the brutal punitive US blockade is able to provide health care for all. But not only that has sent some 400,000 healthcare professionals around the world in over 160 countries. So the Cuban, ex uh, the threat of Cuba is the example of an alternative way of organizing society and a mode of development that puts human welfare at its center. And that is um, both the, you know, links to your question about soft power and links to your question about the Cuban threat to the US. In your book, We Are Cuba, you write that for years, students of Cuba were conditioned to believe that the revolution's trajectory could only be understood by reference to Fidel Castro's biology or psychology. Then Fidel ailed, he resigned, he died, but the revolution lived on. Raul Castro took over. He was referred to as the brother, as it, if that explained his governance, the reformer, as if a peaceful transition to capitalism was assured. Raul came, he reformed, he resigned, and the socialist system prevailed. So if it wasn't the Castro brothers, who explained the endurance of the system, then other factors must account for its survival into the post-Soviet world. Have we been too distracted by all the talk about what the revolution was doing wrong to inquire about what it was getting right and how? So in February, during a 60 Minutes interview, Bernie Sanders was asked about comments he made back in 1995 saying Cubans did not join the U.S. in overthrowing Castro during the 1961 Bay of Pigs invasion because the educated kids... And because uh, they educated their kids and they gave them health care and totally transformed society. Is that what uh, Sanders was considering his, his comments? Was he considering what Cuba got right and how they got it right? And should we consider uh, what rights abusing countries get right and get wrong? In reference to Sanders' comments, I mean, they, they were just such a small concession to what Cuba has achieved um, over the last six decades, and yet he was vilified, which shows really how um, utterly um, uncompromising the political dialogue is among the US establishment in relation to Cuba. And it's quite extraordinary. Um, you know, re diplomatic relations were established with all the other communist and socialist countries uh, well before Cuba. And since they've been established with Cuba, Obama um, really just made some tweaks on the edge of the blockade. Um, and, you know, the Trump administration has gone back to full, full on hostility. And that allows this dialogue. Um, it, 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 it means that if someone like Sanders comes out and makes a small concession to recognizing that there must be a story to be told in Cuba, he's the reaction is so um, vitriolic. The, the fact is 
that, you know, there is an explanation we need to find here. We were always told that Fidel Castro was the revolution. I mean, from my experience of reading English language texts that dominate the reading lists in, in English language universities, um, it was as if Fidel Castro himself was running around and making all the decisions and, and putting people in prison himself and all the rest of it. And yet they, that narrative is um, unable to answer so many questions and explain so much of what goes on in Cuba and in Cuba's projection to the world, like the medical internationalism. It's simply not tenable to suggest that the reason the, the Castro brothers, as the terminology is used, or the Cuban revolutionary government remains in power is because of oppression. And that argument is becoming harder and less tenable as more um, you, people from the United States visit Cuba and they find a vibrant society where people express themselves, where um, art and culture are, um, you know, uh, are flourishing. You know, Cuba has led the world in so many aspects to do with art and culture. Now, in oppressed people, you just will not see that form of expression. Um, you know, I think it's it's very hard for people who have a commitment to capitalism or neoliberal ideology and um, only accept the political expression of that economic system, which we see in the advanced capitalist countries. So if you think that only a multi-party electoral system, even if both parties are very difficult to separate, even if they both, uh, you know, essentially defend private interests, if that is your only model of democracy, of course you'll look at Cuba and see that um, that doesn't exist in Cuba. But, you know, um, the Cubans have a different form of democracy. A occasionally, you know, you'll have a, an article breaking through to the mainstream where people recognize that. One of the things I've tried to do in my book is to represent, to examine and, rep and reflect on this incredible process of popular engagement and participation in the daily decisions in government policies which Cubans have the ability to do. Because I could ask you, do you feel that you fit, you live in a democracy? But if I then asked you, did I think, did you think rather that your opinion would have an impact on any government authority, local or national on their policy? The chances are you'll say no. Whereas in Cuba, they have um, constantly a series of major national consultations and public debates where everyone gets to sit and discuss and record their critique and put their reviews and opinions. And these are assessed. And we can see that this is not just a public relations exercise, because, for example, some of the recent documents that have been produced, um, a document called the conceptualization of the socialist model, 93% of that was changed following critique, debate, and p opinions of people who were consulted on that document. Another document, at the moment, Cuba's going through a, a, a set of reforms, they call it updating the economic system. Um, this was based on a set of guidelines which were produced and put out for public consultation. Nine, nearly nine million pe people participated. So when you take off the, el the very elderly, the infirm and children, that is most people in Cuba participated in discussions about uh, what was being proposed for the future direction of the country and 68% of that document was subsequently changed and that is the roadmap for the Cuban reforms. So on the question of democracy, um, we should not prepare, uh, pretend that it's a black and white question. There, um, you know, it, it is a political question. The question is who has power uh, and to do what and for whom? So uh, it's much more complex. We are speaking with lecturer in economic and social history at the University of Glasgow, economic historian Helen Yaffe, author of We Are Cuba, How Revolutionary People Have Survived in a Post-Soviet World. Helen's teaching focuses on Latin American and Cuban development. Helen's also a visiting fellow at the Latin America and Caribbean Center in the University of Glasgow. Since 1995, Helen has spent living uh, time living and researching in Cuba. Her doctoral thesis was adopted for publication as the book Che Guevara, the Economics of Revolution in 2009. Helen is also co-author of 2017's Youth Activism and Solidarity, The Nonstop Picket Against Apartheid, 
co-authored by Dr. Gavin Brown, who is in the geography department at the University of Leicester. You can follow Helen on Twitter at Helen Yaffe. Helen, can you hear me? Yes, I can. I can hear you much better now. Thanks. Okay, excellent. So one of the things that you were just mentioning, and I just want to follow up on this, is that uh, the way that the United States or the way that outsiders judge Cuba is based on the country's you know, it's through a capitalist lens, basing it on the country's GDP. And if the country's GDP isn't doing well, then those people must not be happy. They must not be getting what they need. It's certainly not judged on uh, you know, public and political participation, as you were saying uh, in your kind of barometer, what metrics you are using when it comes to Cuba. So what does that say about the United States when it comes to democracy, when we judge a country's effectiveness and the way it provides services for its people through gross domestic uh, product and not through political participation? I think we need to be clear that the um, question is about what is the objective of development, of uh, of any given development model. Now, if the objective um, is economic growth um, measured in, you know, profit, productivity, um, wealth creation for private interests, then um, GDP is, a, is probably an adequate measure, although it has come under criticism from many academics for since actually it was introduced in the sort of 1940s. But, you know, um, we would fail to understand anything about Cuba or to assess it on its own terms. So um, if we only take GDP as a measure of success or failure, um, I prefer to do what I call what's called an imminent critique. What were the aims and objectives of the Cuban Revolution and how successful have they been in achieving those? What obstacles have they faced and what um, solutions have they sought to those problems? So um, really, um, I think it's fundamental to understand the Cuban Revolution at its heart has um, key principles to strive for national sovereignty, which we can only understand in the context of a small island nation that was um, under the yoke of Spanish colonialism and then US imperialism for centuries. Um, We need to recognize that in order to understand why uh, national sovereignty or independence uh, is so important to the Cuban revolutionaries. And the other aspect is social justice. Um, So for the Cubans, what motivates their uh, development program or their development paradigm are those two aspects. They will often take measures which seem to go contrary to uh, improving GDP because those measures might violate social justice or national sovereignty. So, you know, rather than just opening up to foreign investment in the sort of um, uh, to to pour into Cuba in the uncontrolled, rampant way that most of Latin America and Central America have done, uh, particularly since the neoliberal period, the Cubans have controlled their natural resources. They have a long line of uh, companies in other countries that are waiting to invest and they are meticulously assessing every proposal to also make sure that uh, foreign investment in Cuba is not based on um, cheap labor and uh, sloppy environmental standards. So also in terms of the reform process where they have uh, legalized the um, uh, development of small and medium sized businesses and they have um, shifted a lot of people from state sector employment into self-employment they have reined those measures in when they believed that it was detrimental to the uh, uh, well-being of the poorest section of the population. And they've done those kind of things repeatedly. In the 2000s period, there was a a moment, an episode um, in Cuba called the Battle of Ideas, which has been totally misunderstood and misrepresented, in my view, um, by outsiders where they there has been any examination of this process, because mostly it's not been known about or examined. Um, and it, it was an incredible program. Um, while Cuba was recovering from the special period of the 1990s, the economic uh, catastrophe that they incurred with the collapse of the Soviet bloc, and as soon as they were able to um, harness some more revenues and start the economy was starting to improve. They invested in massive programs to make sure that nobody in Cuba was being left behind. And they went house to house. They took the weight 
and measurement of every single child in the country, every under 16 year old, to try and find out where there were children suffering from malnutrition um, and to then have sent teams of investigators to work out why. Was it because their fridge was broken, uh, therefore they couldn't store fresh meat? Was it because they had no one in their household at work? What was the situation? And they, you know, these incredible pro social programs, which cost nobody knows how much and which will not have helped to raise GDP, but that was not the uh, objective of the revolutionary government at that time. So I think, you know, if you want to just assess Cuba on GDP, I mean, actually, if you look back over the whole period of the revolution and you compare it to Latin America, its neighbors, we should not be preparing, comparing Cuba to um, the advanced capitalist countries. Um, if you compare it to its neighbors, it hasn't done badly at all. If you look at the devastation wrecked on Latin America in the 1980s of the so-called lost decade, which mostly went up to the middle of the 1990s, then you can see that even under those um, statistics, you know, Cuba's performance hasn't been uh, as shameful as many commentators make out. But if you look at what it's achieved in terms of social welfare indicators, human development, Cuba is a small Caribbean nation which is um, uh, uh, categorized by the United Nations to have uh, achieved high development. It's also the um, world leading country in terms of achieving sustainable development. In 2006, the World Wildlife Fund pinpointed Cuba as at that point the only country that had achieved sustainable development, which means it was live, living within the carrying capacity of its ecosystem, so not destroying more than, more quickly than the earth could reproduce itself, but also raising the standard of living of its population. And those are, um, in a sense, dangerous and inspiring uh, examples or, or, or facts about Cuba. Why dangerous? Because actually it makes people raise their eyebrows and say, hold on, maybe we're doing things wrong. Maybe we should have a look at what Cuba's getting right. And inspiring because it shows that so often we're told that you know you can't change anything, there's nothing you can do. And the story of the Cuban revolution is, is really um, one of a, a small oppressed uh, population that rose up and took matters into its own hands. Um, and, and has really, you know, world leading biotech sector. It has more doctors per person than anywhere in the world. It has more doctors overseas in the World Health Organization. It has incredible record in art and culture. So I think there's definitely a story there that says Cuba's getting something right. I'm really enjoying our conversation because every answer that you give, I come up with seven more follow-up questions that I didn't write down <laughs> beforehand. So I'm really enjoying this. You write that despite meeting most of the sustainable development goals set by the UN in 2015, Cuba's development strategy is not upheld as an example. These contradictions require explanation. You then cite Isabel Allende, director of the Higher Institute for International Relations, telling you in Havana, quote, Cuba is a mystery. It is true. But you have to try to understand that mystery. Why is it so significant that Cuba met those 2015 goals? Well, um, you know, because these have been set by the United Nations, which is a, um, a forum, which an umbrella for the world. And they've set these very ambitious goals. They're very hard to pinpoint in terms of, you know, a target or when, do, when can we say the success has been achieved. But um, these are considered internationally to be goals that are needed in order to, you know, tackle global poverty, to tackle um, environmental destruction and basically to preserve the future of our planet, which is in jeopardy. Um, so I think that's what that, you know, I've put that in the introduction because that's what I've tried to contribute towards to help the reader understand what the Cuban perspective has been. So in every chapter, um, in uh, you know, battle of ideas, uh, biotechnology, the energy revolution, when Cuba was the first country in the world to switch to entirely energy saving bulbs and, and all sorts of other things that happened. I have tried to um, interview some of the key Cubans who were involved in that process. So youth leaders, uh, scientific um, researchers, the director of institutes, uh, political policy makers, and so on. 
because it's really important to see what they were trying to achieve as as well as you know the obstacles they faced um and i think well i hope that my book will go some way towards filling in those gaps that we have you listed some of the many things outsiders are unaware of when it comes to what is really happening within cuba the uh, Battle of Ideas from 2000, as you were saying, the Energy Revolution from 2005, the acceleration of Cuban medical internationalism and the development of Cuba's biotechnology sector. Uh, the Battle of Ideas, as a review of the Museum of the Battle of Ideas in Cardenas explains, was related to the mass mobilization and revitalization of national unity that the Elian Gonzalez case inspired among Cuban citizens. The Battle of Ideas were an expression of Cuban national sovereignty. Why did Elian Gonzalez change Cuba, and did that battle of ideas have any impact on last year's new constitution? So, uh, to deal with the first part of your question, um, Elian Gonzalez was this uh, little five-year-old boy. His mother decided to leave Cuba on a, um, a very unsafe raft. It was at the very the end of the 1990s, which is known as the special period. In this period. Cuban GDP had collapsed by 35%. If you think about what the projections are now with the global catastrophe, the pandemic and the global impact, um, I mean, you would realise how devastating 35% fall in GDP is. Uh, 80% of trade or 86% of trade and investment Cuba loss. The question of Cuba's survival was in the balance and certain measures were taken and uh, collective responses were sought, like, for example, the organic farming uh, movement and so on. Um, but uh, also many people, uh, many Cubans decided to emigrate. It was the decision is made far easier for them because um, unlike the rest of the world and, you know, the thousands of Mexicans who try to enter the United States every year without paperwork, uh, Cubans were at that point given um, automatic residency in the United States and within one year citizenship. So Elian Gonzalez was taken by his mother on an unsafe raft and uh, there were, some people say 12, some 13 people on the raft, most of them unfortunately tragically drowned. So on the one hand, it was a, a terrible, tragic, uh, personal, uh, rather tragic family uh, situation because Elian's father, who was separated from his mother, didn't know that he was being taken out of the country. And immediately that he found out that Elian had survived and was in um, Miami, he made a claim to reunite him, which is the norm under international jurisdiction. Now, the Cubans responded with a campaign uh, a massive mobilization and it was a, a key moment i think because until that point the cubans were in um with in the sort of gear of resisting survival and resistance getting their heads down seech, searching for uh, trying to resolve problems on a day-to-day -day basis and getting through that terrible period but the the battle for elian saw a switch in gear they went from resisting to insisting insisting that elian be returned to his father insisting that you know cuba being given um, its, its recognition internationally be treated like an equal and Behind the scenes, while the battle for to return Elian was going on in Cuba and children were marching and sports people and everyone was out mobilizing the street, behind the scenes, uh, a group, Fidel Castro convened a group of young youth leaders um, to say, we need to examine what happened. What, what is the situation in our barrios and in our houses that people are prepared to risk their lives on a raft to go to the United States. And that is when the investigation started, where they went literally door to door, finding out what problems people had um, and trying to resolve them whenever that was possible. Then that made them look at the situation in schools. They saw that a lot of teachers had left the profession um, and schools, you know, you had classrooms of 40 children and they had within the battle of ideas, a revolution, uh, education revolution. And as a consequence of that, um, class sizes were reduced to uh, 15 and uh, 20. So I think it's 20 for primary and 15 for secondary schools, which is phenomenal. I mean, you know, even in Britain, we have primary class schools of uh, up to 40 students. So um, all of these things uh, took place under the battle of ideas. In, in relation to um, your question about how this might have played into the uh, new constitution. I think um, the battle of ideas saw its moment and it was 
you know, um, some of the programs that were introduced were institutionalized, others had run their course and they ended. But what it did is re-emphasize uh, the role of youth in the revolution and the ability of the revolution to constantly rejuvenate its leadership and its activism. And secondly, it re um, sort of validated the importance of mass mobilization in Cuba and the idea that people must not be left behind, no matter how difficult the economic circumstances. We are always told these stories about how Cuba is a police state, how people are forced to follow policies almost at gunpoint. If you do, if you dissent in any way, you are thrown into prison. These are all the stories that we are told. How does the socialist revolution in Cuba include those who might otherwise want to be excluded from a socialist system? of ideas is a really good example as I um, point out in the book so um, in this uh, revolution in education um, and the battle of ideas it relied on um, young people who were outside work and employment in other words young people who were as Fidel saw it potentially um, you know going to hang around commit crime and end up in prisons and that was actually it was a survey that the Cubans did of the prisons and the young people in prisons finding out what the, you know, how they ended up there, what the professions of their parents were and so on, that led to some of the later Battle of Ideas programs. Um, so that, I mean, that it has been one feature of the revolution to reincorporate sectors uh, within new programs, to give them new agency. I knew people during the Battle of Ideas who had been you know, involved in the youth communist movement and, and were uh, disaffected and had dropped out. But when I went back to Cuba during the uh, battle of ideas, they said to me, no, we've got to mobilize. This is really important. In relation to your question about a police state, I mean, this is an easy stick with which to beat Cuba. Um, and clearly there are people who are in prison for opposing the government. But one clarification I'd like to make is they are not in, in prison because of fought crimes. Um, you know, they are in prison for violating the constitution. And, and this is also associated with, uh, or very, um, very tightly linked with the fact that there is a Cam a concerted operation or campaign by the United States to create an internal opposition in order to affect regime change. Um, most people will know about this from the earlier period, but perhaps they don't realize that, you know, under the, the Bush uh, junior um, regime in the United States, they started to, you know, they had uh, these different programs of free Cuba program, which, which had a plan for removing everyone in the government and um, imprisoning anyone who'd ever been in the Communist Party and so on when the US would, you know, arrive in, in, in Cuba um, in response to some, I don't know, domestic process or something. And um, and basically, you know, split up the the uh, public health care and education and, and introduce a market based system. So um, these programs, uh, Bush ended up spending 20 million a year on uh, regime change programs. And that is money that is agreed, approved in the US Congress and uh, the budget. And Obama carried on with that level of investment. I mean, they see it as an investment, right, because they're investing in you know, undermining the um, Cuban revolution. Now, given that the average wage in Cuba is, I don't know, they've gone up slightly, but we always used to say $20 a month. And there's all this money sloshing around from um, US government agencies and through different, you know, third party organizations and NGOs and so on. It is um, a incredible that there isn't a viable opposition, internal opposition within Cuba. Um, and I think it's testament to the level of um, ideological commitment uh, and, you know, dedication to the the revolutionary government and also the idea of socialism. And secondly, it is actually incredible. There is so much um, liberty in Cuba. People will say, oh, no, in Cuba, they have no freedom. But if you go to Cuba and you walk along the Malacon in Havana, someone will come up to you and say, oh, you know, I hate the revolution. And they're able to do that. They're free to do that. So, you know, there's a kind of hypocrisy there. Um, given 
that Cuba has been subject to 60 years of acts of sabotage and terrorism and attempts at regime change. You know, we can't be surprised that there are um, elements of, you know, civil liberties that are restricted. What we should be surprised of is how actually open the Cuban society is. And you mentioned market reforms. You even point those back to the post-Soviet special period when you write the economy was restructured for reinsertion into global capitalist markets without relinquishing socialism, while the planning system was restored and adapted to the new conditions. Why doesn't inclusion in the market simply undermine Cuban socialism? How much fear is there in Cuba of a capitalist market ending the Soviet or the Soviet, the socialist revolution? Well, you know, what Cuba's managed to do is to incorporate in the international capitalist market, but without relinquishing socialism, because the state retains a monopoly on international trade. And that is absolutely fundamental. What it means is that you're not, um, first of all, you're not not decentralizing, you're not seeing the process that you saw in the former Soviet countries where state-owned enterprises are suddenly the private property of whoever happened to be managing them for the state, and then they can operate on a profit-based system. So um, the the state still controls uh, production and distribution, very importantly, in Cuba. Um, And when they engage in with capitalist international market the revenue goes to the state and it's that that revenue that the government uses to continue its investments in um, healthcare and education i believe cuba has among the highest statistics in the world for the proportion of gdp spent on healthcare and um, education so um the question of you know this question is raised sometimes in relation to the cuban medics that go abroad and this criticism is that oh well uh, the country the host country where the the healthcare professionals go pay the cuban government they don't pay the cuban medics uh, individually and then and the cuban government keeps some 80% of uh, that payment and pays the medics 20% and you know that is correct but the whole idea is that uh, the state uses that revenue to to continue to um, you know, to invest in the social welfare system. None of those medics have paid um, anything for their own education in Cuba. And they are confident that their children will go for university education entirely free. And um, they don't, 96% of Cubans own their own home. If they pay rent, they're legally not allowed to pay more than 5% of their income. Um, you know, access to sport and culture is extremely cheap, heavily subsidized, likewise transport. So it's very difficult to to look at things like a doctor's wage and make a conclusion, because if you gave a financial uh, value to all of the things that all Cubans get as uh, free, you know, free access to, then actually the equivalent salary salary would be much higher. We should know in terms of these questions, you can't eat money. What matters is not the amount of salary, it's what you can obtain with that salary and what standard of living that gives you. And you can't shoot a virus, and we've apparently spent more of our money on the military-industrial complex than on our medical infrastructure, which has gotten us in the situation that we're in right now. In that original AP story I was mentioning earlier, it reports that the coronavirus pandemic has brought a reversal of fortune for Cuban medical diplomacy, as doctors have flown off on new missions to battle COVID-19 in at least 14 countries, including Italy and the tiny principality of Andorra on the Spanish-French border, burnishing the island's international image in the middle of a global crisis and putting aside for a second whether that is a reversal of fortune for Cuba and not just a continuing of the fortune for Cuba. Uh, While this made the AP on Friday, this is not making the nightly news. And I I didn't see any reporting of any good Cuba has been doing so far when it comes to the novel coronavirus 2019. This is not the first report. There are many more. There are even reports of a Chinese wonder drug being used in Italy around the world. Newsweek even cites a Cuba biotech expert, Luis Herrera Martinez, saying the use of interferon alpha-2b recombinant prevents aggravation and complications in patients reaching that stage that ultimately can result in death. And that is according to a recent Yale University Press blog feature written by you, Helen Yaffe. Uh, And so (laughs) 
How much promise does this drug show? Is the cure or a cure out there that we are not learning about here in the States because we have a news and media blockade as well as a trade blockade when it comes to Cuba? So I just need to clarify a few things. This is not a a Chinese drug. This is a a Cuban um, antiviral product. Right. Um, And since I wrote the blog, some people have contacted me saying, oh, Wikipedia doesn't say that the Cubans, you know, have a manufacturer for this. And there are other manufacturers. So just to be clear, the Cubans were working with interferons um, at the same time as uh, biotech companies in the, the West. So um, others had developed interferon alpha 2b. What the Cubans did is carry on working with it and uh, managed to get, uh, as they say, 99% purity, which means it's very effective and it's um, low toxicity and quite safe. They have used interferon alpha 2b um, for hepatitis, uh, I think it's B and C, and for um shingles for hiv and aids and various other things so um when the outbreak of covid19 began the cuban um sorry the chinese national public health commission um instructed a a cuban chinese joint venture which was already producing it to increase production because it wanted to adopt it among this array of products it was, um, you know, experimenting with in a sense or trying to use to combat um, COVID-19. And um, this was a, the Cubans have been producing this in Cuba since 1986, but in 2003, they set up a joint venture in China, uh, which was producing the same thing uh, among many other products. And there's a whole chapter in my book about how interferons Um, the work that the Cubans did with interferons in 1980 was what launched their biotech industry. It was a catalyst. But they they set out on that road with assistance from U.S. medical scientists and European medical scientists. So the Cubans have never claimed to be original with that. They've also not claimed that that, um, interferon alpha-2b is a wonder drug for COVID-19 because that is, it's way too early to prove it. What we can see is that the Chinese um, National Public Health Commission has put interferon now at the top of the list of recommended antiviral drugs for treating COVID-19. So it seems that it is producing good results um, in China and elsewhere. Um, And now 15 countries around the world have um, requested Cuba to get hold of this. And the Cubans are working with the Chinese on a vaccine. But again, so is the rest of the world. um, And that that is still work to be done. So you write how in March 1981, six Cubans spent 12 days in Finland with the Finnish doctor, Carrie Contrell, who in the 1970s had isolated interferon from human cells and had shared the breakthrough by declining to patent the procedure. The Cubans learned to produce large quantities of interferons. What does that say about this whole process when they declined to patent the procedure? Why not patent the procedure and get rich, maybe even help out the economic conditions within Cuba? Yeah, I mean, this was um, uh, Carrie Cantel, who was the first person to be able to sort of extract interferon from its human uh, material. He was the person who didn't um, uh, copyright or patent the, the procedure, and he, he put it out there for everyone. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know... It, it it impacts the world, right? The decision, I mean, I have written a bit about the US uh, capitalist and capitalist um, biotech industry. And, you know, it it holds back medical science globally and therefore impacts humanity when you introduce market mechanisms to medical science. And in fact, the US biotech industry, which was the first in the world, um, is set up around the whole notion of speculative uh, um, investment and venture capital. And it is inherently profit driven. And that makes it in some ways very unproductive. It was not until 2009 that the US biotech industry achieved profit from the sales of its products. How did it keep going? Through speculation, through um, selling shares and and basically totally non-productive um, um, financial mechanisms. 
the um, Cuban industry is completely different. It's entirely state-owned. Um, all of the revenues go back into the state. It's integrated with the public healthcare system. So they have a very quick movement, which has proven vital in the article um, that you were reading from. I talked about how they used it for the dengue outbreak. Um, and that was, you know, within weeks of the Cubans working out how to produce interferons. So there's a very quick movement from the laboratory to testing to public health use. And that is what drives the development of their industry. Now, the Chinese very quickly after the COVID-19 outbreak put the DNA mapping of, of the virus on uh, uh, the internet for everyone to share. And that was also vitally important. Had this happened in, um, you know, in, uh, in the United States, I don't know whether they would have done that or maybe they would have, you know, charged for access to that information. So I think that we have to be clear that um, the, the commodification of medical science costs lives and we all uh, suffer as a consequence. And oddly, they're not saying that on CNN today. We have been speaking with lecturer in economics and uh, in economic and social history at the University of Glasgow, Helen Yaffe, author of We Are Cuba, How Revolutionary People Have Survived in a Post-Soviet World. You can follow Helen on Twitter at Helen. Helen Yaffe, one last question for you, Helen, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell. The question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience will hate your response. Can the pandemic change world opinion, change U.S. opinion toward Cuba such that there is no longer a sustainable blockade and an isolated nation like Cuba? I'd like to hope so. I mean, we saw a heroic effort of the Cubans in um, combating Ebola in West Africa, which was recognized by Obama when he announced rapprochement. But the world seemed to have forgotten. Let's hope so. I think right now is the time to demand an end for the U.S. blockade. And really, that's down to um, particularly you guys in the United States. So to all listeners, um, I think that that is an absolute priority in this moment when Cuba is leading the global fight against COVID-19. Helen, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show. This is not only an amazing book, the uh, blog post that you had at Yale Press is also really fascinating. All of our listeners throughout this whole COVID situation should be reading Helen's work. I really appreciate you being on the show with us this week. Thank you so much for being on. Thanks for the invite. Live from Lake Capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing. This is hell. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, globby, gloppy. Gory, rotten history on April 6, 1580, 440 years ago today, Monday. Northern France and the island of Great Britain were struck by a powerful earthquake that toppled chimneys and church steeples, destroyed houses, and caused untold death on both sides of the English Channel and as far as north as Scotland. Weird, right? France, England, Scotland, Wales being rocked by an earthquake. But you'd think it would happen more often, being an island and all. In one account, two children were killed by a chunk of masonry that fell from the roof of a church hospital. Oof. Modern geologists estimate that the quake measured between 5 and 6 on the Richter scale in intensity. Though earthquakes capable of causing major damage are rare in the British Isles, many others of lesser intensity have occurred there since the one in 1850, and some scientists believe that Britain is overdue for another big one. See, I told you it was weird that they don't have more earthquakes. Those predictions were reportedly taken into account during the design and construction of the railway tunnel under the English Channel, the Channel, which opened in 1994. Yeah, I'd bloody hope you'd have considered the potential impact of earthquakes on a 31 and a half mile underwater tunnel that is transporting on average, at least before the virus, 60,000 people a day. Yes, I hope you considered earthquakes. And by the way, that story of the kid getting killed by a chunk of masonry falling from the church hospital, that's got to be the saddest thing I've heard today. That is, until I watch this morning's and afternoon press conferences on the global pandemic. In Rotten History, April 10th, 1963, 57 years ago this Friday, the USS Thresher, one of the most technologically sophisticated nuclear power attack submarines in the U.S. fleet, was conducting a test dive some 200 miles off the coast of Massachusetts, cruising at a depth of 300 feet, when its crew sent a series of garbled messages to a Navy support ship at the surface. The messages were followed by a long silence, and sailors on the support ship quickly realized to their horror that the Thresher had sunk, carrying 129 crew members to their deaths on the ocean floor. 
a mile and a half below the waves. I don't know why, but when I first read that, it really freaked me out. I knew it was rotten history, so I was prepared for some horrible, awful, rotten history. But the garbled message, then silence, that, that really kind of just freaks me out. More than a year passed before research vessels were able to locate and photograph the submarine's wreckage. A year! A freaking year! And a naval inquiry was never able to arrive at a clear cause of the accident. I'm going to go with too much unwanted and uninvited water in the submarine. The leading conjecture was that a burst pipe joint flooded the engine room and caused a short circuit in the thresher's electrical system, which in turn caused the nuclear reactor to shut down, resulting in a complete loss of power. To this day, the Navy monitors the wreckage site, and it reports, reports no significant radiation leakage, whatever they think significant is, from the submarine's reactor. The thresher was never decommissioned by the U.S. Navy. It is listed as being on, quote, eternal patrol in the North Atlantic, that's just creepy. Yeah, my grandparents are on eternal patrol of Detroit's east side in Mondelliot Cemetery. That's a disturbing and far more goth view than one would expect from the U.S. military. On the other hand, they are kind of like a death cult, so, you know, with so many things being called death cults nowadays, why not throw in the military, too? That's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Hey, Alex, who's on tomorrow's Tuesdays live? This is Hell, streaming at 10 a.m. on thisishell.com, and then podcast at 2 p.m. Alex Liebman and Rob Wallace will be back. Rob Wallace will be back on. Alex Liebman will be on for the first time to talk about their monthly review piece, COVID-19 and the Circuits of Capital. So Rob's actually going to be able to talk on that? Yeah, yeah. No kidding? Yeah, yeah. Wow. So uh, and I'll make sure our mic stuff is working a little bit better. I think that actually might have been my problem looking back on it. Uh, I think the problem that we had, and oh, by the way, that interview is actually just, uh, Ed Sutton just finished a transcript of that. So I'm going to try to get that out there. But I think what ended up happening uh, with that is Mike, uh, Rob's mic might not have been working a couple weeks ago. And I was maybe just so freaked out <laughs> from our first quarantine cast that I might not have uh, sort of, that I might have just accepted that uh, problem with the audio. So I would be more rigorous now that if, uh, I'm further on in the death drive. I'm just glad that he's fine yes. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know i mean our question from hell for him how are you feeling and then he's like i've got covid i've got numbness in my hands and i got to go to the hospital yeah, let's stop asking people how they're doing <laughs> exactly uh so that's tomorrow and we're also going to have you're going to reveal the question from hell and we'll tell people what the prize is going to be i want to thank alex for producing today's show thanks to helen yaffe our guest thanks to ronaldo magaldi for helping us out with rotten history always special thanks to theron hummiston our engineer truly revolting radio this is Hell. Talk to you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>